Let's take up our Bibles this evening and read from two passages at this point. First of all, we'll read from Acts chapter 2, and then we'll turn to our text in Matthew chapter 16, read a section of that and focus on one or two of the verses. But Acts chapter 2 is an example of the function of the church and the apostles in it, which function uh, Jesus promises in our text about the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Acts chapter 2, and we'll begin at verse uh, 14 through 24, we'll read. Peter is showing that to him has been given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He's opening up the minds of the people to the knowledge of the gospel of God in Jesus Christ. He's preaching. And here we read in this Pentecost sermon the wonderful fruit of Christ's promised word of the keys. Verse 14, Acts 2, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, one speaking in tongues, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my maidservants and on my maidservants, Men servants and all my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs from God, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Thus far we read, wonderful fruit of the Holy Spirit of the sermon, the enlightenment of Peter on that day, and a fulfillment, I say, of the promise that is our text, Matthew 16 and verse 19. I'm going to read that and also then verse 20. But let's, let's start at verse 17. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Our text. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ, something that Peter had just confessed. As far we read the word of God, 
May our reading be anointed by the Spirit, and may we respond as prophets, priests, and kings. Take this to heart, as little children and older men and women, that we can be among the people who acknowledge this is the very Word of God. We've been considering this passage in some detail because there's great weight here in the ministry of Jesus, great significance, a turning point. People are leaving him, going after the scribes and the Pharisees who are plotting to kill him. No one's hardly understanding, as we'll see in the next sermon about Peter himself, who contradicts his very uh, confession that Jesus is the Christ. But the key here is Jesus is seeking from his own disciples a personal recognition of Jesus' own identity. He wants them to know who he is. And when Peter is asked and all the other disciples, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answers and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that's the key. And upon this truth, Jesus says he will build his church. And so you have this amazing, uh, amazing understanding of Jesus, which is something that yields us promise from Jesus. But now what Jesus does is having been rightly identified by his disciple Peter and who represents the others in their confession. They all agreed with this, perhaps not Judas, but the others. Jesus, who himself is identified, now would identify the identifiers. And what he would say here is to call them this church, and he has said this, and he would speak of the church's function that there are keys given to this church, the keys even of the kingdom of heaven, which function, which work, is also her blessedness. And so, having identified Jesus, Jesus identifies the church as she is in connection with him. And this, beloved, is exactly what we need to remember. Today, 2,000 plus years later, we need to remember Jesus and then who he makes us to be. And he needs, uh, we need to remember the function that we have and the power and authority even of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. This is so crucial if we would shine in this dark world that doesn't seem to know who itself is at all. And the reason, of course, is no one can really know who herself is or who himself is if they do not know God and if they do not know Messiah. We, as God's people who confess Jesus, know him truly, and that will mean knowing ourselves, and that will mean that we are here for one reason, to give glory to this God and our Savior Jesus, who has given us such a wonderful purpose on earth, such a wonderful identity, such a great goal and blessedness, even as those who go to heaven. So, there is a lot of confusion about this text and about all of that has been said about it, but we pray that we might know it's not just a center of confusion, but it's a center of light. Here's the idea. There's keys of the kingdom of heaven. This is what we want to talk about here, what they are and the nature of this power and to whom they're given. And keys here are symbolic of power and authority. 
fact, there were those who had keys in the religious community of the day who'd wear keys as an ensign on their shoulder, maybe, to show that they had power and authority. Here, they're given to Peter, as we'll see, and also representatives of the Church of Christ to open and to shut the, the, the kingdom of heaven. That's the idea of the binding and the loosing. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And you'll notice here that there's a whatever. Whatever you bind on earth and a whatever you loose on earth. And the reference, therefore, is to a what. Uh, the question is what's being bound and what's being loosed. And the idea seems, first of all, to be, without a doubt, the, the truth of Jesus, the truth as it is in Jesus, the truth that's now revealed since he's come and will be revealed when the Holy Spirit of truth is poured out upon the church. In other words, the keys have reference to knowledge. And the opening of the kingdom of heaven has something to do with knowledge that's given to, first of all, to Peter, as we'll see, and then the apostles and the church. And, of course, ultimately, Jesus has the key of knowledge. This is in line with what the Bible says about what apostles were, for example, to put off the question, first of all, to whom these keys are given. But the idea of the keys is that there was this, this opening of knowledge. The, the Jews used to say that when their doctors were made and educated and they were made scribes and doctors of the law, they would be given a key to the scrolls to open them up, and the idea was that that would represent their authority, their calling, their qualification, to open up to the people things that were prohibited from them, things that were forbidden, that would be the binding power of the key and of the one with the knowledge, and also to tell them what they were free to do, so what they were loosed to do. It was a kind of legislative aspect here. What's the law say? And the Jews were focused in their being of the covenant of the law on the law. So Jesus speaks of scribes and having this knowledge in Matthew 13, verse 52, I think. And it seems to be, and all the commentators are, are, are <clears throat> they speak of this, that there's this knowledge. Now, this knowledge we should know and this unlocking knowledge for them, revealing to the people the things of the kingdom, which is, the things which are allowed and which are forbidden, we realize that that's what the apostles were given. They were given great knowledge. The Holy Spirit was given to them. And the risen Lord Jesus arose and he gave some apostles, some prophets, some pastors and teachers to be the expounders of the knowledge of the new things of the great kingdom of heaven. And you think of how the apostles would show in the, in the first church what was now forbidden to them, things that they had to remember because there was an advance in the covenant of grace. There was a covenant of the old, the old things, the covenant of law, 
Now, there's a new covenant. One of the things that they had to remember uh, to know, to tell the people, was that now certain things were forbidden to them, like circumcision. And so the apostles had to say, no more circumcision for you. Don't be stuck in the Old Testament things. That's forbidden to you. Why? Because Jesus Christ is our righteousness and If you're going to be a debtor to keep that law, you're going to have to keep the rest of the law, and salvation is not about that. It's all about faith in Jesus Christ, and if you're circumcised, you think you have to do something in addition to believing, then you're a debtor to do the whole law, and you're cursed, you're lost, because you can't keep it perfectly. You're back and stuck in Adam. Not only are you a son of Abraham, but you're a son of the devil, because you're there in your works, And your works have no value before God who is holy. So that was definitely forgiven and also the keeping of the other aspects of the ceremonial law. They had to bind the people with regard to that. That is, tell them, no, no, no more. And this is very important. They say, no more observing of special feast days and Passovers and so on because Christ is our Passover. And our celebration is of the things of the new covenant focused on the cross See, Jesus hasn't strayed from his own identity in revealing it here. The people to whom he gives the keys, the church to whom he gives the the keys are the ones who teach of Jesus and the new knowledge upon this son come in the flesh, this last word of God spoken in these last days is the knowledge of Jesus and of our salvation in him. People were... Now free, at the same time, uh, the apostles would say as they, as they opened the eyes of the people whom they would uh, teach to the things of the new covenant, they were free in this sense then to eat unclean animals. There were no longer dietary laws that were for them. All things were given of God, Paul would write in 1 Timothy 4, nothing to be refused because it's sanctified by the word of God in prayer. Associating, fraternizing with Gentiles was also allowed, though that was forbidden in the old covenant of the strict Jews. So this idea of knowledge and that, as Peter would say in 1, Timothy, or 1 Peter 4, verse 10, they were stewards of the manifold grace of God is this idea of the keys on behalf of Jesus who gives the keys, the keys of knowledge, the keys of understanding, the disciples are stewards, and the church is a steward so that people know something. There's an educational aspect, therefore, to the keys, first of all. And so whatsoever, whatever they're teaching, as long as it's in light and harmony with the rest of the word of God and what God shall reveal is something that has to do with what God himself forbids if they're binding certain things and with God in heaven itself forbid or, or allow what they are loosing by this new education in the light of Jesus. But then, of course, there's, a, there's something more even and in fact, we, we learn of this in, in John in 20, in verse 13, very important passage with regard to this. Jesus speaks in John 20, verse 23, I mean. He, he says to 
John, and to Peter, receive ye the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And the idea here has to do with people. Remember in Matthew 16, it had to do with whatsoever's, whatsoever you're teaching that's required, whatsoever you're teaching that's allowed. Now it's whosoever. It has to do with something very important that follows from knowledge and follows from the gift of faith, forgiveness. There's a power that's given, and this is implied, and this is how our catechism interprets the keys of the kingdom, to pronounce the forgiveness of sins to those who repent and to show uh, and to show that they are believers. And there is this power also to retain the sins of those who show themselves to be uh, unbelievers and not merely inconsistent and slow learners as we all are, but who are decidedly against the Lord and against declaring that he is the righteous one and I believe in him. So there's not only a legislative, interpretive aspect of these keys, but there's this, uh, this judicial and declarative enforcing of the things of heaven. And in fact, it has to do with people entering the kingdom of heaven and people being prohibited from entering the kingdom of heaven. As we say, beloved, these are the keys and this twofold aspect of binding and loosing with regard to knowledge, with regard to persons, these keys are the preaching and the discipline of the church. This is what the church of all ages has been led to confess with regard to this commandment of Jesus, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And just a a, a clarification on that uh, binding on earth and heaven, loosing on earth and heaven, it's really, it could be translated this way, and it, it tends to give a better sense of what's going on here. Jesus is saying, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. The idea of the perfect tenses there in the Greek language seems to indicate that when the church teaches, and when the church declares forgiveness, when the church says something's forbidden, when the church announces that these people are out of the kingdom and they're excommunicated, it will simply be that we are recognizing what has been affirmed in heaven already. So the idea is not that we're the ones who forgive sins, and that we have the power alone to forgive sins, or that knowledge uh, remains with us. No, the idea is that God knows and God teaches what's right and wrong, and God knows who's forgiven and who's not, who's a sinner and who's an elect child of God. And now he leads the church to say, this is what you are able to recognize. And the function that you have is teaching the people what's right and wrong, and then declaring as they respond to this what is right or wrong about them as you see by their fruits that they are right with God or wrong with God. So the church is this agent, this agency of what God himself is doing in heaven, teaching from heaven and leading the church to recognize that church on earth 
So having to do with whatsoever's truth and whosoever's people. And putting the text in Matthew 16 and John 20 together, that's what we arrive at. There's this thing about knowledge and this binding of things and loosing of things as the scribes of the Old Testament did, but now the New Testament stewards of the mysteries of grace are privileged to be a part of. And this forgiveness of sins, so weighty. Now to whom is that given? That power? Jesus says here to Peter. Can't avoid that, beloved. And I will give you, that's singular, Peter, to whom he's just been referring in a way, right above that. Thou art Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I will give you, referring to Peter, first of all, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind, you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now here's where the controversy begins, because Rome has perverted the truth here. As they did about Peter, they say, is the rock. And they've said that to Peter and Peter alone, the keys of the kingdom are given, are, of heaven are given. And so Peter's at the pearly gates, even, they'll say. And comics will say. Don't read those comics, beloved. It's blasphemous. And Peter's right there is at the gates of heaven. And people are saying, you know, why should I get in and all this stuff? To Peter, indeed, are given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And there's this certain eminency of Peter here that's recognized. And we need to recognize that. Even though we don't agree with Rome that to Peter and Peter alone are given the keys, or that to Peter as the head of the church are given the keys, and that there's an apostolic succession after Peter so that Pope, this or that, in the Roman Catholic Church is a descendant of Peter. We don't agree with that. Nevertheless, let's acknowledge what the text says. To Peter, in a first-of-all situation here, is given the keys. Why is that? Well, there's an honor given to Peter. As there was an honor given to Mary, not that she's sinless, but that she's the mother of the Savior. Blessed are you, Mary. So Peter is blessed because he's given to confess Christ the first way and the first time clearly among all the disciples. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus pulls him aside, as it were, and said, this is a great thing. Now, Peter, of course, is almost clueless about what that means at this point, and he'll show that in the next couple of verses. But there is an eminency that Jesus recognizes, not... First of all, about Peter and Peter on his own, but the grace of God working Peter is, is amazing. And let us recognize as well that the rest of the New Testament shows this kind of position of Peter that's, though he's among the disciples, yet makes him special in a way. He's blessed. For example, in all of the list of the disciples, Peter's first. And then you have this, to Peter is given the keys such that he's the one who rises up 
on Pentecost and preaches the first gospel sermon. We read part of that. His was the first unfolding of the truth that Jesus is the fulfillment of of all things that were ever said of the prophets. And he's the king, the real king. And David was only a type. And Jesus Christ in his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God and now in the pouring out of the Spirit is the one who inaugurates the final days, the day of the prophecy, the day of the Lord according to the prophecy of Joel chapter 2. Peter is the one as well who in Acts 2 says, this is how you're saved. Repent and believe on the Lord. That's what he says to the Jews who were gathered there at Jerusalem in Acts 2. But then you read further that Peter leads the way in the conversion of the Gentiles, Acts chapter 10. And so to the Gentiles, Peter goes in going to Cornelius, and to him it's revealed that there's nothing unclean about Gentiles, not anymore. And you all have to recognize you're just unclean and you're needing the cleansing of Christ, Jew and Gentile. There is no difference. Peter would recognize, and his epistles show this, he's inspired the way of the new birth by the word of God, 1 Peter 1, and other things that Peter was privy to. There, you have that. That's what we must say here. And we must say that, but we must say that in light of the rest of the Bible, which says, first of all, this. Peter can't be the head of the church. There's only one, Jesus. Peter can't be the foundation of the church. There's only one, Jesus. In fact, Peter himself is not the only one to whom are given the keys of the kingdom. Initially, there was this eminence of Peter that was recognized by the Lord, but very soon there was this equality among the apostles that was recognized as well. Paul later would say that the church is built on the foundation of Peter. No, upon the foundation of the apostles, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20. But if you look even in Matthew 18, not straying far from our text here, Jesus is speaking to the disciples and says, In verse 18 of Matthew 18, Assuredly, I say to you, plural, you disciples, whatever you together bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The very important understanding that we have then. There's a primus inter pares, Latin words for first among equals, that's represented in Peter, but not a head among subjects not a lord over the rest, and not one from whom comes this whole succession of apostles. Do you know about that whole idea of apostolic succession? The Pope thinks that he's a literal successor of Peter who was in Rome, and then there was another Pope, another descendant of Peter. That's not found in the Bible. In fact, there's no such thing, really, as apostolic succession except in a certain sense of the word. Because, you know, apostles even now don't need to be succeeded. They're in heaven, waiting to reign with Jesus and to become then the 12 foundations 
of the church, according to Revelation. They are those who have no successors. They are the 12 that God has chosen. Judas is replaced, of course. And so this whole idea of apostolic succession to try to create a preeminent pope and city of Rome as if this was the fount of all Christendom is beyond the scriptures and really is abomination. It leads to all kinds of people declaring themselves to be the fount of wisdom and the ones who have all the power. Beloved, we have this wonderful key of the kingdom, keys of the kingdom in the apostles. And I want to say as well that so do we, so does we. To Peter, initially and in a certain way, eminently in the early church, you find his opening the New Testament truths to, to the people of God. You find, however, the other apostles exercising not only preaching but disciplining those in the name of God, even slaying people like Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the Holy Ghost. Talk about excommunication like that, powerfully. But also to the church is given the keys. This is clear from that... that, uh, account in Matthew as well, where there are sinners who are to go to one another, and if they will not hear, however, the sinners in Matthew 18, 15 are to go to the church, and by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established, and if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church, that is, the representatives, the elders, and if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector, there is what's called the exercise of the keys in excommunication. In the casting out of the church something or someone who is showing himself or herself to be an unbeliever, recognizing that in the sight of God that is true as well. Now, of course, the church is never infallible in this, and the sinners may come back. And we praise God when this happens, but this is the power of the church to declare forgiven, to declare unforgiven, and to be on the behalf of the apostolic ministry and of the ministry of Jesus himself. And this is what I want to say toward the end of this first point about the idea of the keys. Let us be clear here. The Jesus who says that to Peter and the disciples and the church is given the keys of the kingdom on his behalf would remind them that it is on his behalf. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. You don't have this inherently. I will give you them. And he's saying this, remember, in the context of his having said, I will build my church upon this rock. And also in light of the context of promising that the gates of hell, <coughs> excuse me, will not prevail against the church. <coughs> what Jesus is doing here now is saying that he will use the church itself as an agency of power. He would remember that uh, to the church that her identity is such and such and such. She's 
She's regnant, she's ruling, she's powerful in this earth, and to no other institution and to no other apostles is the given, but just remember, you're on my behalf. These are my keys I give to you. I died for sinners. I rose for sinners. I'm coming again for sinners. I forgive. You don't. And I release And I bind. I say what's right and wrong and what you're free to do and what your Christian liberty is and what you're prohibited from doing. I send my love abroad in your heart so that you know this. And I excommunicate from the outward church such as are hypocrites and who love me not, though for a while they may have said so. The Bible itself in Revelation 1 and 3 reminds us that Jesus himself has the keys of the kingdom even when he's giving them to the church. In his glorious vision appearance to John in Revelation 1.18, he says, I am he who lives and was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore, amen, and I have the keys of Hades, hell, and of death. I have those keys. In Revelation 3 verse 7, he says this, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write these things, says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. So, church of Jesus Christ, let's lead into the second point here, the use of the keys. Here's the first thing to remember if you have the keys, because you do have the keys. Use them, but only remember that Christ is using you to use them. All glory given to Jesus in the exercise of the keys. Preacher, when you preach, remember it's Jesus. Elders, when you elder, remember it's Jesus shepherding the flock. Great power, too. We're not only servants of Jesus, but we're powerful servants of Jesus. This is something that is almost incredible. The most powerful institute in the world, the most powerful people of God are the people of God, the true people of God. Powerful. Saving to damn. God saving and damning through us. Two-edged is the sword, saver of life to life and death unto death, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2. Who can know this? Victorious always is the gospel. Paul would say that. When people are saved, when people are damned, when people come, when people go, as long as we're faithful, we can understand that the gospel is having its way because the keys of knowledge are being opened and and the minds of people are being opened to things that are forbidden and things that we're free to do. And there's forgiveness through you. What a power. What a power. And... Remember, we do, that it's a spiritual power. Note here, Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven being opened. And with regard to the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 16, these things apply. Give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So let us remember the spiritual nature of the power that we have. Not a political power. Not. 
Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Matthew is all about the parables of the kingdom of heaven, of heavenly origin, of heavenly character. It's spiritual in nature. From the pulpit, we preach the gospel. Not how to get a candidate elected, but we preach the gospel of our election. The death and resurrection of Jesus We would promote the spirituality of the people of God, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Our walking is salt and light in this world for the conversion of sinners, the drawing of men to Christ and not to ourselves, and the allying of ourselves with those who are of like mind so that Paul can say the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, 2 Corinthians 10. And mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds of the mind, of the will of sinners. Mighty through God. Mightier than an earthly sword, a bazooka, a nuclear weapon. The spiritual kingdom of heaven. Oh, that we remember that. And that we are in the service of Christ with the word of Christ, and that alone. Now, beloved, remembering this is not so easy as we are in this world and we have all kinds of carnal thoughts. We can. I can, you can. And we can get frustrated at just having this weapon called preaching, this key called preaching, and just having the discipline of the church. That looks so bad. That's not politically correct. We actually tell people they're wrong or we confirm them when they're right simply by being Christian and being believing, even if they're not so smart or they're not, they don't have all their ducks in a row. We, we say that they believe in Jesus. This is, this is everything. This is where it's at. It's hard to remember, I say, to use those keys and not to put them in a drawer somewhere and not to try to use some other method to bring people into our fold to get acceptance and recognition among others who have different things in mind than causing the kingdom to come. So we can be discouraged. Let's not be, though, beloved, because the gospel ministry, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, is the ministry of reconciliation. Asian. The minister of the most thing, the thing that's most needful, sinners to be brought to God. We have a ministry here of leading sinners to God and being led to God to be led more to God. That is so key. Remember that. Remember that. But then I want to share with you something I've been thinking about in seeking to apply this to ourselves and not as could be to be caught in, say, a polemic with regard to this this sermon or others in this text that are highly controversial. I want to suggest to you that in our understanding and appreciating the use of the keys, we need to know that there's doors That's just one door. There's a door, indeed, to the church. This is the figure here. There's a key to the door, that door. Let's look at that door. And then 
You're in. You confess your faith. You're in Christ. Beloved, for us to appreciate not only the past work of God in bringing us in, but that, what that means, I believe we have to understand that those keys are always functioning, not just for those outside to bring them in, but for those who are inside, and which means that maybe we ought to see the kingdom within, and this church within, as full of other doors. Other doors. For example, the door to further holiness in a certain area of our life. The keys of the kingdom apply, they would apply to you if you want to go and to be holy in a certain area of your life, to draw near to God, to to an inner place inside the place that you've come to by the grace of God. So that there's this advancement in holiness. You're justified, you're made right with God, but then there's this further work. And this further work of Christ through the exercise of the keys of the kingdom, through your finding out more and more what is right and what is wrong, and you're doing what is right and not doing what is wrong, and especially as you're finding out the truth as it is in Jesus of the manifold grace of God to get you there in the first place. And so in the kingdom you are, and it's not we're in and you're out, But we're in, and we're so glad to be in, I want to get in further. I want to go not just to church, but to God. I want to go so that I utter a first prayer, but so that I utter more. And I draw near to God, as Hebrews says. I draw near to Him. And maybe there's another door that You have to go through, and you need to go through the door of suffering. And I want to submit to you and to call this to your attention that you'll be able to go through that door and to enter that room even, though it's a a hard place to live, as you remember what's true and what's true of you and what's true of your family and what's true of every child of God, suffering is for your eternal welfare. It is not so that you merely are uncomfortable, certainly not that you get discouraged. But right in the center of those rooms of suffering, into which you're led and ushered by the opening of the keys of the kingdom and the shutting of them, You go in, and you go in by faith, and your unbelief is kept out of the door so that that suffering has a center, and the center is the altar, the altar of the cross of Jesus Christ. And for many people, a people of God, maybe most of us, maybe all of us, those are the best rooms to go into, the rooms of suffering within the kingdom of Christ as you're continually hearing the preaching of the gospel, understanding that this is a matter of righteousness of Jesus and not yours. And it's not to your credit that you're here and someone else is not. You taste and see the goodness of God at Calvary. And there's other doors 
of opportunities to serve in the kingdom of heaven, which are open to you as you hear the preaching tonight. And you say, Lord, thanks for making me more aware now of what I need to say to my neighbor, making me more aware of how now I should make this business decision or what friends I should have or what friends I should not have. Another door. Movement, advancement, opening and closing, and all because, beloved, we are blessed to be blessed and blessed and more blessed. There's something about this of sanctification. It's not just about an entrance into the kingdom, but about some people who, being taken into the kingdom, now become a part of it all. And you think of this, and Matthew 18 brings this out. There's the exercise of the keys of the kingdom when the church finally recognized that a sinner doesn't repent and they're cast out and they're like a heathen. But what about before that? Brother goes to brother. Sister goes to sister. Sinner goes with sinner to the cross. And there's this working out of discipline, working out of the knowledge of forgiveness in Jesus, this grace work among two of you and three of you and nine or ten or two or three families of you. You're all part of it. So in a sense, to you is given the keys of the kingdom, not just to elders and to crusty old ministers, but to you, believer, to you. What a great gift. And that's, in fact, where preaching begins and, and where discipline begins in the hearts of the people of God who want it, who love it, who love this is what God gives to us. It's so rich. So blessed. This is why involved in the truth of the kingdom of heaven and the church that it is, they're one, the church and the kingdom of heaven. Church is a kingdom. Christ is the king and His people are the subjects, and there's blessings there. This is why membership in the church is so important. Membership. A lot of people think these things are, they go on all the time among church loosey-goosey Christians, I call them. They just flit around here and there. And... I'm the church of the, the latest internet preacher. I, I'm a member of that church. And I sit on the couch and I listen and I say, hooray. And then he says something I don't like and I turn the channel and this guy's more charismatic and likable and now that's my church. How wrong-headed that is. Church of the dime a dozen. Church which has no real concrete roots on the earth and doors in the earth and people on the earth and sinful ministers on the earth and elders who aren't perfect on the earth. But that's what God gives us. You know how blessed it has been to, to grow with you here? I hope you know that, that I'm blessed by you 
and that you're blessed through, through this church. As members, as committed, as those who say, you know, I need to show something of the commitment of Christ to me in recognizing that he makes families out of people of God and, and those who show the maturity by being members somewhere, belonging somewhere. So really, I want to close with words like this. Remember in the introduction we said this is all about Christ's identity and then his showing us who we are and what our work is. And I present to you that that's how it comes around. The more we know Jesus, the more we know Jesus at work in his church, the more we know ourselves. And the more we know ourselves, the more we know that in ourselves we're nothing but Christ in us is our life and our hope. He's yours, isn't it? And he's mine. And so this whole world is someone and something that we can witness to about their crisis, which is an identity crisis. They don't know up from down, left from right, male from female. They don't know who they are. And the young people don't know who they are. And you think it's bad now? Look at the generation that's being raised. Crooked. With no God and no Savior. Not one God, no Savior. That's from heaven and Jesus is his name. But they're being raised on the gospel of man, which isn't a gospel. No hope, no identity. Let's change it. Let's change everything. Let's change what's right and change what's wrong and change our mate and divorce and do this and that. And as long as we find ourselves, as long as we're happy, well, we have reason to be happy. As Peter was blessed for his confession, the church is blessed for Christ's confession of us, saying, you're mine. And then we want to make it known. Contrary, you might say, to what Jesus says here in verse 20. This is striking. He speaks of himself, and he's so glad that Peter has spoken of himself, and he, he got it right, at least for now. And Jesus has been speaking about this identity of the church as this thing built on this rock and hell will not prevail against it. She will have eternal life. And now she has this function on his behalf, key opening and shutting. And then he commands his disciples, shh, don't tell anybody. Man. Commanded his disciples they should tell no one that he was the Jesus the Christ, and that would probably mean don't tell them about anything I've just told you. Because if Jesus is not the Christ, then there's not this rock, and there's not this church, there's not this kingdom of heaven, and there's no keys. Why is that? Oh, beloved. I'm glad I know, first of all, that this was temporary. It was temporary because there was a there was a preparation that they had to undergo here. There was a trial by cross that they had to go through here. They weren't ready. 
The Holy Spirit was not yet given. Everybody's going to run when Jesus goes to the cross. They're going to run away. Peter's going to deny him. Right at our next sermon, he's going to say, far be it from you to go to the cross. He shows he really doesn't understand what he said. The eyes of the apostles were not yet enlightened, nor were they empowered. That's why Jesus says, don't tell anybody yet. You're going to get it wrong. And you're not going to know what you're, you're talking about, and they're not going to know what you're talking about. And besides, your life will not yet be influenced as it should be after you have been atoned for and the Holy Spirit is poured out. But then, go tell it on the mountain, over the hills, and everywhere. Then, and certainly... We know this is true because Jesus, at the end of Matthew, says, go and disciple the world. Go and tell the people to observe everything I've commanded you, those who are baptized into my name and those who are given to the grace to enter the kingdom. You tell them then. And as he says in Matthew 5, the essence of the church is to be the city on the hill, this light of the world, and to declare to the world the good works of God in Jesus Christ then you can tell them. So, beloved, you've heard, and I trust you've been humbled, but made happy, that is, blessed, through the hearing of this word, of who Jesus is and who we are because of him, and of our calling now, even more blessed than those first apostles at that time, to be heralds of the good news. Go, and tell the world that Jesus is the Christ, and tell them that he's made your heart his home, your church his home, and all true churches his home. It's called the kingdom of heaven. And great things go on there. You can tell them, by the way. Great things go on there. And there's great rooms. And it's a great life to be a Christian. It's a victorious thing. We claim over hell itself, life, and over every discouragement, peace and happiness in the Lord, the peace and happiness that Jesus gives. And we wield the faith that overcomes the world. Amen. Our God in heaven, we pray that you would bless us, everyone. We might be those happy bearers of the good news and hearers of it, and doers of it. And we want, Lord, to know you and to confess you properly and clearly and fully in this world, with mouth and with deed, as individuals and as church. We pray, Father, help us to continue to use the keys of the kingdom. May they not go rusty here. May they be appreciated here. And may... This exercise of the keys truly be used for the salvation of many and their growth and progress in holiness led to the God of our salvation and to worship. Amen.